Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish, selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. I bring greetings from Bellevue Chapel. Um, and, uh, well, we come to God's word now, don't we? I wonder if you might perhaps have your Bibles open at the passage that we've just read from Philippians in chapter 2. Um, it's such a rich and wonderful letter. I'm glad you're taking time to work through it together as a church. Um, so we'll be looking at those four verses that were read, chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. We'll be connecting that with what's just come before and briefly with what comes after as well. But as we look at this passage, I want to begin with a, a challenge, a challenge for each of us. And it's this. Does the way that we act and speak encourage, and, and, and think even encourage church unity? in our local church, whether that's for you here at Fernie Hill or for me at Bellevue, or perhaps if you're visiting for, for you in your own church. Do the conversations, for example, that we have after the service promote unity? What about the way we act in, in the ministries that we may be involved in? Or what about those attitudes that we have towards others in the congregation? Are we contributing towards the church becoming more harmonious, more together, more loving? Or is it possible that some of the things that we've said and done, some of the attitudes that we sometimes have, are causing division or argument? Or could we be displaying a lack of love? Now, I don't find that a comfortable question. That's a real challenge to my heart, and I guess it may well be for all of us. Now, I'm not asking that question, of course, because um, anyone's told me that there are some particular issues here at Fernie Hill that I need to address. Now, I'm asking those questions because that really is Paul's concern in this passage. You see, as Paul wrote to the church in Philippi, unity was very much on his mind. It's a theme that comes up a number of times in the letter. We know that at least there is one, was one very particular problem. Two prominent ladies in the church, Euodia and Syntyche, had fallen out. And, and Paul is urging them to be reconciled to one another, to agree to one another. You'll see that in chapter 4. But actually, this question of the church being united or being of one mind has already been introduced um, back in uh, chapter 1, verse 27. And I believe you were looking at that last week. Let's just read that then. Um, from, so it's chapter 1 and verse 27 and 28. Paul says to the church, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. The church in Philippi is a church seeking to stand up for the gospel of Jesus in a hostile world, not unlike us. 
They're a church seeking to preach Christ, even as they faced opposition. But you know, if, they, if they're going to do that, then Paul says to them, as he says to us, we need to be united. The church is like soldiers in a battle, an army fighting together. And a successful army needs to be united in their aim, don't they? They need to agree on their tactics. They need to be willing to fight for one another. I think perhaps we see that in the Ukrainian army at the moment, don't we? Their successes seem amazing at times, but I'm pretty sure it's because they are united in this great purpose of getting their country back. Because you see, if an army is fighting with one another, or rather fighting amongst one another rather than for the same purpose, then things often go wrong and they tend not to win, do they? Or perhaps we might think about sport, and, and, and uh, I don't know about if anyone here is a football fan, but if you are, just what is it that makes a good team start losing? Well, often it's a lack of unity, isn't it? It's when the players start falling out, or when they disagree with the manager on tactics, or when the star player decides he wants to do his own thing. When that happens, chances are they start to lose. And that's true for the church too, isn't it? We must be united if we're to be effective in reaching out to our society or to our local area, to our friends, to our family with the gospel. Well, that was part of last week's passage. But in chapter 2, Paul is continuing on the same theme. In verse 2 of Philippians chapter 2, he urges us to be of one mind, to be like-minded. And he really cares about this. He says that if the Philippian believers are like-minded, then that will make his joy complete. And he's already expressed in chapter 1 great joy in these believers. They've, They've brought in much happiness because of their progress in the Lord and their service for the Lord. But if that's to be complete, Paul says, be united. And it's a joyful, wonderful thing when God's people are united. So then he returns to this passage, and we're going to look at it under three headings. I think there's three main things here. Uh, First of all, we're going to look at the motivation for unity. Then secondly, we're going to look at a description of unity. What's the, the big picture? And then thirdly, we dive into the detail a bit more, and we're going to look at the practice of unity. So first of all, then, the motivation for unity the motivation for unity, and that is God's saving work, God's saving work. We've seen already then that uh, unity is important if we want to stand firm for Christ in a hostile world. But actually, Paul gives us a stronger reason. He gives us a stronger motivation to be united. In these verses, he calls God's people to unity because of what God has done for them, because of who they are. And this is a a really important principle when we read God's Word. And when we read through the New Testament, God calls us to obedience because of what He's already done for us. We're never called to live for God in order to be saved. We're called to live for God because He has saved us. And perhaps you're here this morning and you've not yet come and trusted in Jesus. You're maybe new to church, new to the Bible, and you're still thinking things through. Well, if that's you, here's where you must start. Coming to receive for yourself what God has done through Jesus. Coming to see 
that you need a savior. You see, Christians aren't people who think they are good, who think they're good enough for God. They're people who've realized that they are bad, that they're sinners, that they're under God's condemnation. And they're people who've turned from their sin and put their trust in Jesus, who promises to forgive and to give new life and relationship with God to everyone who trusts in him. And so as you listen this morning, before you even think about this whole question of unity, your great need is to come and put your trust in Jesus and experience what he's done for you. So God's saving work then is the motivation for church unity. And at the same time, it's what makes church unity possible. It's the why and also the how. And in this first verse, uh, we've got four reasons. Four things, really, that the triune God has done for us. Because I think we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit here. Well, we start with God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Right at the beginning, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, if we've come to faith in Jesus, we are in Christ. We are united to him spiritually. We used to live for ourselves, didn't we? We used to go our own way. We used to, we used to be sinfully rejecting God and breaking his commandments. We were cut off from him. We were under his condemnation. But then, but then God spoke to us through the word and he opened our eyes and we came and we trusted in Jesus. We put our faith in him and we knew at that moment that our sins were forgiven because of Jesus' death for us. And at that point, something else happened. We died to our old way of life. And we received a, a new life. Life in Christ. Life in relationship with God. A life living for Jesus. No longer selfish, no longer on the road to hell and judgment without hope. But now a life full of hope. A life lived in the joy of knowing God through Christ. A, a life looking forward to the certainty of the new heavens and earth to come. If there's any encouragement. If there's any comfort, says Paul, that's encouraging, isn't it? That's comfort, isn't it? Aren't there days and times when it just overwhelms you what you have through being in Jesus, eternal life through him? And you know, that's true for each one of us individually. But we're not on our own in that, are we? Look around you this morning. Look at your fellow believers, your brothers and sisters here. They've all got this same identity in Christ. This same comfort. And that's the beauty of the church, isn't it? We're a body of people in Christ together. He's the head. We're the body. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, that's the second thing. And I think actually this is most likely, and, and the Greek's quite kind of, terse here. It doesn't have lots of words in it. Paul's speaking quite in quite a sort of staccato way, so, so there's a little bit of interpretation here. But I think actually this is speaking of the love of God the Father. God loved us, his people, before the foundation of the world. And in time, 
God has brought us through Jesus to experience his love. We have come to know the extraordinary love of a heavenly father, the love of the creator and the sustainer of the world. Isn't that an incredible comfort that the great almighty creator loves you and that love will never and can never change? What a comfort that is, especially in times when we're anxious, especially in times when we're under attack, especially when things are tough and we're struggling with temptation or doubt. My heavenly Father loves me. But wonderfully, again, it's not just me, is it? When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray our Father. Because this is a love we share with one another as Christians here. The Apostle John says in his first letter in chapter 3, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. We, together, are the children of God. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, any participation or sharing in the Spirit, that's the third one. As Christians, the Holy Spirit lives in each of our hearts. He unites us to Christ. He speaks to us through the Bible. He's making us more like Jesus day by day. And again, this isn't just an individual thing. Each one of us has the Holy Spirit living in us, don't we? Each one of us individually is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's right. But also the church collectively. The local church is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, to the whole church, you are God's temple. We share in the Spirit together, in other words. God is, through God, the Holy Spirit is making us more like Jesus as a family. He binds us together as one body, one building being built up in Christ. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any sharing in the Spirit. And then lastly, this is all through God's affection and sympathy, or perhaps his mercy is a good way to read that. In other words, we've received all this from our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not because we deserve it, because we don't deserve it. We're sinners, aren't we? We were rebels against him. We deserved hell. No, because he looked on us with compassion. And in mercy, he did not give us what we deserved. But rather in grace, he gave us everything through Jesus. And he's made us collectively his family. He's shown mercy to all of us. So that's what Paul gives us then. And all this means both that we ought to be united And also, because of all we have and all that we are in Christ, we can be united. Paul really is calling us here to be what we in fact are. So then that's the motivation for unity. And that's where we start. And that's what we hold on to. And that's what we'll keep remembering. 
The motivation for God's, for unity rather, is God's saving work for us. Now secondly and more briefly, we have a description of unity, a description of unity, and I've summarized this as one in love, in feelings, and in purpose. Look at verse 2. Make my joy complete, says Paul, by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, and of one mind. What is unity? What is like-mindedness? It means to have the same love, the same spirit, or of one accord, as some translations will say, and of one mind. I think just reading that tells you that this isn't a superficial kind of unity. We see that sometimes, don't we? I was thinking of, of politics and, and sometimes that, that you know, when a, a party releases a manifesto or perhaps the leader's under a certain amount of pressure and they stand up and they make a statement, all of the, the members of the party stand behind them or stand behind the manifesto. But you don't have to read very far in your paper or listen very hard to realize that behind the scenes, they're all disagreeing and and, and arguing about things because they've all got their own opinions and and, and they might put on a, a united front, but it's not the reality. That's not what we're talking about here. It's something much deeper. Now, it's certainly true that when we talk about unity in the gospel and unity in the church, it means that we all agree on and stand behind the basics, the key facts of the gospel. It certainly does mean that we must all agree on our core essential doctrine, because without that, there can't be any unity. It's clear it all comes out from the gospel truth we've just been looking at. But actually, I think when we look at this verse, we realize it's even deeper than that. What does it mean to to be like-minded? Well, three things. Firstly, it's a unity of love. We're called to love one another. But that's really hard, isn't it, sometimes? How can we love those people that we, we really struggle to get on with and we somehow think so differently to and we keep having these little sort of arguments and, and, and uh, it's just hard sometimes to love people, isn't it? But we can love them because we know what true love is, because we've experienced it, haven't we? The Father loved me before the foundation of the world and I've come to know that love. The Son loved me so much that he gave his life. And the Spirit, well, the Spirit does it work in me to develop that very same love. It's unity of love. It's a unity of spirit, which one translation, I think, quite helpfully paraphrases it, having the same feelings. Now, that's a bit of a challenge, isn't it? Because we're all temperamentally different from each other, and we all um, uh, like and are attracted to different things. We all get passionate about different things. It would be pretty boring if, we all, if that wasn't true, wouldn't it? But there should be common feelings, and actually there are. We're all in Christ, aren't we? We all have the same Heavenly Father. We all have the same Spirit at work in us, and that means that, that whatever our differences may be, we have a desire given to us for the glory of God. We all want the Lord Jesus Christ to be known. And we all look out at a world full of people who are lost without hope. And we desire them to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, when those desires are weak, will we pray that God will strengthen them in us?
one spirit having the same feelings. And the third one, one mind. I think this is really unity of purpose. It means literally thinking the one thing. And uh, if our shared desire is to make Jesus known to the glory of God so that people might be saved, then what is our fir- what's our focus going to be? It's going to be to preach Christ, isn't it? It's going to be to make disciples. It's going to be to make his name known to all who need him and, and to see them come and trust in Christ. That's our great purpose, isn't it? And we confess, don't we, that we very easily get distracted sometimes. Sometimes we make secondary issues in the church as though they're the main thing. I know I feel this way sometimes. We, 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 we spend our efforts and energies hoping that we could sing the songs that we think are best or, 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 or we want to make sure we use the right Bible translation or, or perhaps the, that we want to run our evangelistic activities in a particular way with a particular focus. And, and I'm not telling you that these things don't matter. They're not indifferent. They do matter. But when they become the big thing, then somehow the gospel is lost, isn't it? Will we make the one thing, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, making disciples, seeing people come to Christ and grow in their faith, will that be our great purpose? Friends, we're called as the family of God to a great and a deep unity, a unity of love, of feelings, of purpose, gospel purpose. And as we've already seen, we can do that because we're all in Christ. We're all loved by the same Heavenly Father and we all share in the same Holy Spirit who's making us like Christ, who's forming His desires, His, um, His priorities, His likeness in us. Let's be united, shall we? So we've had the motivation for unity, which is God's saving work in us. We've had a description of unity, which is that we are to be one in love and feelings and in purpose. And then thirdly, we have the practice of unity, the practice of unity. And at the heart of this sits this one word that's in our title, humility. See, Paul is now moving from the the big picture of unity, thinking about us as a whole, as a body, and now he's going into, if you like, into the nuts and bolts and the practicalities of day by day living and serving as a church. He's looking at the everyday, little, ordinary interactions that we're constantly having with one another, the way we talk to one another and about one another after the service or when we meet in the week and so on. The way we treat each other when we perhaps are in a meeting for uh, the leaders of, a, of the Sunday club or, or, or youth work or, or, or whatever you're involved in. This is all about how we respond to someone when they're having a hard time or when they're battling with sin. How we approach those people we disagree with and how we deal with them and speak to them. That's what it's all about. Because it's in those everyday interactions that unity really stands or falls and i say it again the crucial attitude is humility and in verse three and four both have a negative and a positive and uh, we're going to look at them now They're, they're quite close together in their thought i think but but let's look at them so verse three first of all do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. 
rather, in humility, value others above yourself. There's an attitude to avoid here. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Selfish ambition looks at a situation and says, what can I get out of this? How does this benefit me? Selfish ambition is is wanting to win the argument. It's wanting to serve in the church in a way that makes me look good. It's insisting that my preference in music style or whatever it might be is the best one. It's evaluating a sermon based on, I didn't get much out of that, or I got a lot out of that. That's what matters, not necessarily how it helped others. Vain conceit is similar, I guess. This is thinking you are great, really. Thinking that you're better. Your preferences are best. I'm more gifted than others. We're more faithful than them. More worth listening to. Do you ever think those things I do? But am I really? This is our old sinful nature at work, isn't it? The nature that we are always trying to put to death. And here's the devil at work trying to get us to think in these ways. And when I find myself slipping into this kind of thinking, what do I do? I I find myself going home on a Sunday and complaining about the service or about another person. How about how... I would do it better. And you know, if we're not careful, we end up falling out and arguing as a church and we're not very united anymore and we struggle to be an effective witness anymore. And so, we need to pray for and seek to live out this humility. So what does this humility look like? Well, Paul tells us, he says, value others above yourselves. Value others above yourselves. On one level, that's very simple, isn't it? But in practice, it's pretty tough at times. What does that look like? Well, when I'm tempted to complain about someone else, to belittle their opinion, well, what should I do? Well, I think firstly, take a deep breath. But what we need to do is stop that temptation to assume that we're better. That we know better. That somehow we're more important. Instead, switch it round. Look at them and think, they are more important than me. They are better than me. They're more worthy of respect and honor than me. How do we have that attitude? Remember all that we've seen. Remember who our brother or sister is and what they have. Look at them as a fellow brother or sister in Christ. See them as a person loved by God before the foundation of the world and for all eternity into the future. Loved so much that he sent his son to die for them. Look at them as someone indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who the Holy Spirit is making step by step, little by little, more than Jesus. And yes, of course, there's more work to do. But there is for me too, isn't there? Look at them as someone who shares the same love, the same feelings, the same purpose that we have. And look at them as someone we're going to spend eternity worshipping Christ with. 
That's the attitude that Paul desires to see in every personal interaction in the church. Value others. Consider others above yourself, better than you. And we're going to fail. And when we do, this humility leads us to do what is often the hardest thing, and that is apologize and forgive and try again and turn to Christ for the strength we need. And when that's our approach, even with all our failings, we will stand firm for the gospel. We will be united as we seek to reach the world for Christ. And then lastly, look at verse 4. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others or the others. You see, that's the humble person, isn't it? They're interested in others' good, others' well-being. Do my words and my actions encourage my brother or sister in Christ in their faith? Am I acting in ways that will help them to grow spiritually? Am I speaking to them in ways that will help them to be a better witness for Jesus Christ? Will I be humble when I disagree with them? Will I come alongside someone with love and help them to grow in the knowledge of God's word? Do I look out for others when they're having a hard time? This is sacrifice, isn't it? But we're called not to look just for ourselves, but also to look for the interests of others. Am I prepared to provide hospitality for the lonely? Am I prepared to give financially and practically to those who are struggling and in need? Am I prepared to give up my time, my energy, my resources, in other words, for my fellow Christians? Oh, that's the attitude that Christ is forming in us by his Holy Spirit, isn't it? Remember, we've died to the life where we, naturally speaking, live for ourselves. Our new life is in Christ. We live for him now. We follow him now. And he, well, he's the ultimate example of humility, isn't he? Of living for others, of giving himself for others. And of course, that's where the passage is going next. And that's where you'll be privileged to spend some time next week. But just listen to these verses now. It's verse 5 onwards. Have this mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him. Oh, who do we follow in this? Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. We have a model of humility. The eternal Son of God took on flesh and went all the way to the cross. That's humility, isn't it? Will we, in the strength that God provides, will we follow him? Well, that's next week. It's a glorious passage. 
But God's word, as we've seen, calls us to unity. We've seen the motivation for unity, which is the saving work of the triune God and all he's done for us and all that he's made us. We've had a description of unity. We're to be united in love, in feelings and in purpose. And we've considered the practice of unity, humility, following Christ, our great example. And friends, it's all possible, not in our own strength, but by the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Will we pray for that transforming power, for his continued support as we seek to live this way, so that Fernie Hill Evangelical Church continues to be and and ever grows as a witness, standing firm for Christ here in this part of town? Or Bellevue Chapel, that we might grow in our unity and reach out to our community? Or if you're part of another church, that it might be true and continue to be true and increasingly true for your church too. Standing side by side for the gospel of Jesus Christ. For the Son who has redeemed us. For the Father who has loved us. From the poor, the foundation of the world. From the Holy Spirit who's given us life and is making us more like Jesus. Amen. Shall we Our gracious Father, your word both challenges us and encourages us. It points us to the wonder of what Jesus Christ has done for us and all that we have. And it challenges us to grow in unity through humility. Oh, grow our love for one another, we pray. Unite us in purpose. Unite us in valuing others above ourselves. In following the example of Christ. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.